Welcome to Bizarre to Brutal, featuring true crimes and scandals that were reported in the hugely popular Victorian newspaper, The Illustrated Police News. What follows are the actual reports from that time. But first, a warning. The writers sometimes didn't hold back from giving the most intimate details of these events. But if you can stand it, you'll get a revealing insight into Victorian life and uncensored human nature. So let's walk back through the mists of time. Fifteenth of May, 1869. Duel between a lady and gentleman. A most singular encounter, or passage of arms, took place a few days ago. A Paris correspondent writes, I have another duel to report, this time between a lady and gentleman. It appears upon the first blush of the thing impossible that the most polite city in the world should furnish us with so singular an example. Nevertheless, it is true, as the following brief report, forwarded us by an eyewitness, will sufficiently testify. A woman's wounded feelings would admit of no other means of reparation than by calling out her detractor. Monsieur de Aurevilly, theatrical critic of the Nanjon, having said something which displeased Mademoiselle Duverger, an actress of the gate, that lady called him out, and the duel came off on Sunday afternoon at Saint-Germain. Mademoiselle Duverger chose pistols, and at the first shot succeeded in carrying off one of the locks of hair which adorned her opponent's head. Her seconds, two actresses from the same theatre, then declared honour satisfied, and the party wound up the day by a dinner at the pavilion Henri IV. This duel will, no doubt, be followed by others of a similar nature, and I shall not be surprised to see half the actresses in Paris calling out their unfortunate critics, who, both in name of honour and gallantry, will be obliged to accept the challenges of their fair adversaries. Fifth of June, 1869. An extraordinary story. A trial that has just been held before the Correctional Tribunal of Milan has excited strong interest by the dramatic circumstances disclosed. A married woman, 25 years of age, bearing the rather remarkable name of Caroline of Aragon, and whose husband had abandoned her, became enamoured of an Englishman named Edmund Howard, who lived in Milan and gave lessons in English. His position in the Lombard capital seems to have been good, but he abandoned it for her sake and they travelled together, and early in the present year were at Venice. While there, her family, which for five years had taken no notice of her, suddenly applied to the Milan police to have her brought back to her father's house. 
she was arrested, taken to Milan and placed as a prisoner in her father's hands. Howard applied for her freedom to the king's procurator, who summoned Daragonus, father and daughter, to appear before him at noon on the 11th of February. It was the wedding day of one of her brothers. By signs from her window, she contrived to inform Howard that she was going out at noon, and when, at that hour, she and her father got into a carriage, he appeared at the door, touched her on the arm and asked her where she was going. The details of the tragical scene that ensued are well given in a letter written by her to Howard's advocate and by him laid before the tribunal. Whatever her frailties, Caroline of Aragon is evidently a clever and courageous woman. Her attachment to Howard, she declares, originated in her appreciation of his remarkable talents and cultivated mind, and was confirmed and strengthened by the many sacrifices he made for her. They had much to struggle with and much to endure, but still they lived happily together until their arrest at Venice. She writes, I was cast into prison like a malefactor without knowing for what reason. In these painful circumstances, I had fresh proofs of Howard's attachment in the extraordinary efforts he made for my release. But the order was irrevocable. I was forced to set out the next morning, escorted by a functionary who made me over to the Milan police, who apparently, not knowing what to do with me, sent me from one place to another, and finally to San Vittore, accompanied by two policemen in plain clothes, and thence, on the following day, I was made over to my family. I will not dwell upon the mental anguish occasioned me by such treatment. To this hour, I am unable to comprehend by what right and in virtue of what law the police interfered in the affair, since it was not a case of restoring some runaway minor to her family. I, being of age, and a married woman, and five years absent from my father's house... She states that she was locked up in a room and allowed to see no one. Unfortunately, Howard misinterpreted the signal made from her window and instead of understanding that at 12 the next day she was to be taken before the royal procurator, he thought she proposed that he should meet her in the house door to take her away from Milan. Staggered at seeing her accompanied by her father, he stood at the carriage window and, in reply to his inquiry, she told him where she was going to be taken. A horrible scene ensued, which she thus vividly describes. The words were hardly spoken when my brother Luigi and his father-in-law fell upon him, seized him furiously by the beard and dragged him back under the gateway of the house. Then he was assailed by a crowd of bystanders, and a tremendous struggle began. Howard, seeing himself overwhelmed with insults and by the number of his adversaries, drew a six-barrelled revolver from his pocket and warned his assailants to stand back or he would fire upon them. Seeing that the warning was fruitless, he fired three or four shots in the air, as I myself saw, with no other object I am profoundly convinced than to clear a space around him and so rejoin me. 
all this was the work of a moment. As if with a presentiment of what was about to happen, I jumped out of the carriage and hastened to join him. But, alas, too late, for he already lay upon the ground, bathed in his own blood. Stooping over him, and just as he had spoken the words, Je meurs pour toi et je t'aime, a kick given, I cannot say by whom, forced his eye out of the socket, and it fell down over his cheek. I remained as one petrified, my hand clasped in his, I swore in my heart to revenge his death. When I was dragged away by main force, and so sudden and violent was the impetus that the poor victim was dragged with me for some distance over the stones. Covered with his blood and almost frantic, I was forced again into the carriage and carried before the royal procurator, to whom those fresh bloodstains attested the deplorable fact that had just occurred. It appears that when Howard fired his revolver in the air, one of the Diaragonas, either from fright or in trying to get away, slipped and fell. Howard thought he had killed him and, seized with despair, put his pistol to his head and shot himself. He appeared in court with a black bandage round his head, having lost his right eye. The papers describe him as a man of six and thirty, of gentlemanly appearance. When Caroline d'Aragon came into court to give evidence, he advanced to meet her, and they clasped hands with great emotion. The tribunal acquitted him on the charge of firing with malicious intent. He was fined 50 francs for carrying the revolver and immediately released. Twenty-third of October, eighteen sixty-nine. Throwing a man into a copper of boiling water. On Friday last, at the Lambeth Police Court, Richard Lister, twenty-seven, proprietor of a German sausage manufactory in James Street, Hatcham, was charged with violently assaulting Charles Swift and throwing him into a copper of boiling water. Mr. Odie defended. Officer 225R said, About a quarter before three o'clock in the afternoon, he was called in James Street, Hatcham, and was told a man had thrown another into a copper of boiling water. The prisoner opened the door to him, and he asked him what was the matter. He replied, Nothing. He then saw a medical gentleman attending upon an old man named Swift, whose clothes were off and who was wrapped round with bandages. The doctor said the man might die going to the hospital. The injured man said he was picked up bodily by the prisoner and thrown into the copper of boiling water. Mr Edwards, house surgeon of Guy's Hospital, said Swift was brought into the hospital scolded severely about the face, arms, chest and back. The skin, in many places, being completely destroyed. Mr Elliot. Do you consider it a dangerous case? Mr Edwards. Most decidedly. Mr Elliot. 
Are there any witnesses to this transaction? Constable. Two men who saw it were ordered to be here, but I cannot find them. Mr Elliot. They must be brought here. After a short adjournment of the case, Nathaniel Nottage was called and said he worked at the prisoner's factory. He heard the prisoner and Swift quarrelling. Lister struck him with his fist and knocked him down. On Swift getting up, prisoner seized hold of him and threw him over his shoulder, right into a 55-gallon copper, the water in which was about three parts boiling hot. Mr Elliot, how is it you did not come here this morning to give evidence? Police Constable Smith. He was offered money by a person named Langford to go away. Langford was the bail for prisoner. Mr Elliot to the witness. Is that so? Witness. He took me to a public house, gave me gin and beer and a shilling and told me I had better go away. Langford denied the statement. Witness. It is true, sir, and he said I could have five shillings if I wanted it. Langford. I lent him the shilling. Constable. I found the witness at a public house with Langford, and the former told him about the affair. Mr Elliot. It is a serious offence, and I order Langford to find one bail in £20 to appear at the remand. Walter Nottage, another workman at the factory, bore out the evidence as to the assault and the throwing by prisoner of Swift into the copper. Mr Elliot ordered a remand. Mr Odie applied for bail, which was refused. It will be seen by reference to our police reports that the man has since died. Thirtieth of October, eighteen sixty nine. The elopement of a nun. The Continental Journals report a singular case of elopement from a nunnery at Tagana, Upper Navan. It seems that a young lady of great personal attractions was placed by her parents some ten months ago in the convent from which only a few days ago she contrived to make her escape. It was stated at the time that the young lady joined the Holy Sisterhood, of which she became a member of her own free will. But a number of facts have since become known which prove this not to have been the case. An attachment was the cause of her incarceration. She inherited property under the will of her grandfather and she was in love. Two very excellent reasons for her being taken care of. For two long, weary months, she remained a captive within the walls of her prison house. Notwithstanding this, she managed to communicate with her lover, a young officer in the service of Spain, who appears to have acted with promptness and decision, for he planned and successfully carried out the escape of the fair novice. The young officer, with a companion in arms, a servant, two horses and a ladder, reached in the dusk of the evening the outer walls of the convent, 
which his lady love scaled by means of a ladder the gardener had purposely forgotten to take away with him. In a few minutes afterwards, she was placed by her lover on the back of a fleet horse, and she was soon beyond the reach of her enemies. It is reported that the two are now united in the bonds of holy wedlock. For special reasons, the names of all parties have not been mentioned in the above report. Thirteenth of November, eighteen sixty nine. Breach of promise case. The case of Irvin versus Vickers was before the Court of Common Pleas on Tuesday. This was an action against Mr. Austin Vickers to recover damages for the breach of an alleged promise of marriage. The facts of the case were these. The defendant met the plaintiff at Hampton Races about the year 1862 and subsequently she became his housekeeper. Undoubtedly, this was not a very favourable commencement to a case like this, but the letters of the defendant showed that he was so fascinated by the woman that he entirely lost control over himself. There were about 90 letters, and the writer alluded to himself as the man who is devoted to you, who thinks that no other woman in the world can compare with you and who loves you. Goodbye, golden hair, my little blue eyes. The Lord Chief Justice read the letter that is strongest to prove a promise of marriage. The Lord Chief Justice. Read the letter that is strongest to prove a promise of marriage. Dr Keneally admitted that he had none that would prove such a promise, but there were several letters in which the defendant referred to his family matters. The Lord Chief Justice. When you say housekeeper, do you mean that the plaintiff was the defendant's mistress? Dr Keneally. Yes. After this, it was admitted that various immoralities could be proved against the plaintiff, and as no distinct promise of marriage could be discovered in the letters, the Lord Chief Justice thought there were no grounds for a new trial. He considered that the fervid expressions in the letters were quite consistent with other relations than those of an engagement to marry. The rule was therefore refused. You've been listening to Bizarre to Brutal. I'm Mark Capel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, climb into your handsome cab and head over to bizarretobrutal.com to find out more. See you next time.